Hello, friends. Uh, Greg Kokel here. I welcome you to our show. It's called Stand to Reason. And um, you know that we are in our 30th year here. It's hard to imagine. I mean, just it just is. And it's one of those things, too. Uh, it hasn't been like a rifle shot because I was, what, 30? I was 40. Let's see. 40. <laughs> three, almost. Almost. 19, <laughs> I'm doing the math here in my head. 1993. Okay, I was almost 43 years old when I started. <clears throat> now I'm, you know, what, you know, I'm not exactly twice as old, but, uh, you know, a lot older. And so time seems to be going faster now than it did before. That's just the phenomenology of the passage of time. <clears throat> but uh, nevertheless, it's been quite a ride. And I... Oh, and so much too, and you do too, actually, so much to my co-founder, Melinda Penner, who was right there with me from the outset. In fact, she was a helper with me at Hope Chapel in Hermosa Beach in projects I had there, and she was a school teacher, but she was such a great sidekick, and she was so skilled at certain things, especially like organization and administration, and she was very, very bright. We got our master's degree in philosophy together under J.P. Moreland, that uh, I, I, I can honestly say I could not have done this without her. And one person wrote me a note and said, behind every, every man is a, is a good man, is a good woman, and there's a sense in which this is certainly true with Melinda Penner. But uh, And she was our beloved enforcer for 25 years until her debilitating accident nearly six years ago. Well, I just want you to know that um, Melinda went home to be with the Lord last week. And uh, her health had been faltering badly in the past few weeks. You know that she's been bedridden, if you follow the show much, because... She fell from a ladder December 2nd, uh, 2017, and uh, suffered a debilitating traumatic brain injury. In fact, uh, a surgery was necessary that night to save her life. And the surgeon said she's not going to be able to take care of herself, probably, if she survives. Well, she did survive. And uh, he was right. And so for the last six years, she's been in a care facility with uh, some lucidity in her thinking and ability to communicate. Um, but in the last few weeks, um, she'd been faltering. And since a week ago, uh, that Tuesday, I should say, uh, the 31st of October, yes, Halloween, also, as she liked to point out, Reformation Day, that was also her birthday. And so we, <clears throat> Melinda, I'm sorry, Amy Hall and Meg Crowley and I from here from Standard Reason decided after the broadcast last weekend to drop by to see her for her birthday. And we knew that she wasn't doing well. And we spent uh, an hour to an hour and a half with her until visiting time was over and held her hand and uh, talked to her, uh, not with her. She was intubated and had a oxygen mask on, and but uh, she could see us and, and responded in some ways to us at different times. And uh, we 
saying happy birthday to her at the end and and um then prayed over her before we left and uh the next morning just 12 hours later we got the news that she had passed away first of november so the 31st on tuesday was her birthday and the next day was her graduation day it's it's not possible to overstate melinda's impact on my life for the 35 years i knew her and i mean she helped me with so many things with my walk with the lord <clears throat> with my my thinking as a christian with um with my relationships with my family with the being a president and being presidential and i mean there's all kind and melinda was not scared of me at all <laughs> so if she needed to say something she said it um very direct an iron sharpens iron kind of relationship and because of that i'm i'm and all of her faithful service i'm i'm so indebted to her but so are um the live so are countless others whose lives have been transformed for the kingdom's sake through her efforts so uh she served us all faithfully because she honored her savior first in everything and uh we already miss you melinda well done but welcome home that thoughts wanted to pass that on to you many people most actually who are part of our community have received a communique but many of you have been listening regularly and remember when melinda for many many years was the enforcer of this show taking the calls and she started doing that even before stand to reason started when i was doing commercial radio with the crawford network in uh, at kbrt here in southern california she just volunteered her time and was the board up not the board up but the uh, the call taker and uh, managed that so thank you melinda for your faithfulness to us well i um we got some callers coming in but uh well, amy is kind of getting them in the queue why don't i um jump into some uh, open mic calls here that's uh, people who call in to um 857-DIAL-STR or 857-342-5787 okay that's the number you could dial and then just leave your question and we'll we'll put you uh we'll store it you know and so in times like these i'll i'll get to them so here's a question from uh uh, I want to go the, I think it's Curtis, K-I-R-T-U-S. Do you see that, uh, Kyle, our bearded beast? Let's hear from Curtis. Hello, this is Curtis from Grand Rapids, Michigan. So it's been my experience that men in general, in all the cultures of people that I've communicated with, which people in Europe, North America, Asia, all men tease each other, razz each other, give each other a hard time. Closer, <laughs> the, the tighter the group, the more that happens. So one, for me, I, I, I believe that that's probably then innate, right? It's just, it's part of being a man. Um, 
do you agree with that? Is one question. And then if you do, or I guess even if you don't, what does the Bible say about that behavior? Is it encouraged, discouraged, anything like that? Thank you for your time. Well, thanks, Curtis. And um, actually, I agree that men do this if they have an affection for each other. And so just a few moments ago, I referred to the bearded beast. I wasn't talking about you, Curtis. I was talking about Kyle. But Kyle loves it when I say that. I can see it on his face because he knows it's a sign of affection and friendship and closeness. Okay? We don't say those kinds of things, guys, to people we don't know and aren't close to. In fact, it's a measure of closeness between guys when they start chiding each other in this way. And actually, it's not just chiding or kidding. It's insulting them. <laughs> it's got to be an insult. What would otherwise be considered an insult if it was done under different circumstances with different people? And uh, but but it's it's a uh, it, it's taken as a you know a kindness and in fact you don't even have to know the person that well. So I was this weekend at an event and uh, I, uh, I, I there was a fellow that I'd been spending some time with actually he was my host and then he introduced me to his wife. So in this case I did know him because I've done some events for him in the past, Dwayne, and he introduced me to his wife and his wife was cute. And I said, man, how did a dopey-looking guy like this get a good-looking woman like you? Now, I've, that's not the first time I've said that. I've said that to lots of guys. But it's always taken well because, first, it's a, it's a, uh, it's a compliment to the wife. And secondly, <clears throat> it's, a, it's a sign of affection for the guy, even though I'm kind of putting him down. Um, or they show me their kid. I said, oh, man— your kid's cute. Must take after your wife, not you. You know, there it is. See, that's an insult, right? That's a put-down after a fashion. But done in that context, um, then um, it's a, just a sign of affection and kindness. So I, 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 you're right. Men who are close to each other tend to tease each other. Once in a while, you might have somebody that might be a little bit nervous about it, but generally it it communicates uh, a sense of closeness and bond, and that's why guys like it. So um, no big deal. Fine. That's fun. It's good. It means we're close kind of thing. Now, the other part of your question was that um, what, do you, what, do you, what do I think the Bible has to say about this kind of behavior? I, the only thing that I can think of that might be um, a verse one could cite against this kind of behavior is the passage in, I think it's in Philippians, where it says, Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, except such a word that is good for edification, according to the need of the moment, that it may give grace to those who hear. Now, um, those kinds—that exhortation applies differently in different situations. Remember, it says, according to the need of the moment. Unwholesome words—actually, the concept of, of words—this is my take on this in general. 
is that some words spoken in one set of circumstances would be unwholesome if spoken in a different set of circumstances. So there are ways that guys would talk to each other that's quite natural and quite appropriate to each other, but if there was a woman present, we might not use exactly the same words, because now the circumstances have changed. Somebody else is present, and it's not going to give grace, in a certain sense, to that person. But I think when guys are together and they're chiding each other in the way I just described, it does give them grace. It is appropriate for the moment. It's not an unwholesome word. It's an encouraging word. It's a um, a word that, you know, draws people together. I'm chuckling because it is a little bit goofy, but that's just the way it works. By the way, every guy—listen, hey, Beard or Beast, you tell me if this is right. Every guy— are you listening to me, Bird and Beast? This is—oh, okay. <laughs> Every guy knows exactly what I'm talking about. He's nodding yes. Every guy knows exactly what I'm talking about here, because they do it. It's just, it's just a sign of friendship and closeness. Now, I don't know what girls do. I don't think they do it quite the same way. No, Amy's shaking her head, <laughs> No. How did a good-looking guy like you get such an ugly wife? Now, I don't think that's going to work the same way. That would not be a sign of uh, affection and friendship. And No, <laughs> the bearded piece is shaking his head no. So there's different sensibilities. So what is a wholesome word, and appropriate for the moment, giving grace, is going to be different under different circumstances. As it is, what you've just identified, Curtis— um, the teasing, um, I have no trouble with that at all. Neither does the bearded beast, the funny-looking bearded beast. <laughs> so, so I just added to the love, haven't I, Kyle? <laughs> Piling it on, <laughs> one insult at a time. All right, we got Sarah here in Oceanside. Let's go to see. Uh, let's go to her and see what she has to say. Sarah, hey, hi. Sarah. Oh, wait. I'm sorry. That button didn't work. Wait. It's still not working. My button's not working. Can you do it for your end? Okay. There we go. Thank hey. you. Amy had to help me because my button in here isn't working. She had to push my button out there. Glad to have okay. you on board, Sarah. Hi. Uh, hi. Hi. I found your last conversation funny, by the way. Oh, thank you. <laughs> Thank you. And yes, some some women do. A lot of the military women do. Now, see, if you were a guy, I'd say, "Yeah, I'm glad stupid people do." <laughs> but I'd never, I wouldn't say that to you. All right. So, do girls it's do that right at if all? If you did, I wouldn't take offense. No. Well, see, see, Amy, I, you know, our Amy here, you know, she's one of the guys a lot, you know. So there's no, she didn't even mind us calling her a guy, you know. She's like, but um, the band of brothers, so to speak, here, but. Uh, all right, so Sarah, I'm glad to hear you chuckling. What's on your mind? Well, speaking of the band of brothers, um, that's right. Hmm. My question was, what's the biblically appropriate role of the military? Um, uh, more specifically, you know, if we look at the commandments: is do not murder. You know, yes. It's, <laughs> but then we've got like all these weapon systems and. We make all these plans to basically do that. <laughs> yes. So. Well, do, when you say do that, now this is where we <laughs> want to be careful with our words, right? Yeah. 
Right. Because do not murder, and then our weapon systems are meant to do that, which it sounds like right. you mean is to murder, and murder and killing are two different things. So, one one is a subset. Murder is a subset of killing. That is, all murder is killing, but not all killing is murder. Hmm. Okay? And okay. this is when someone—you accurately quoted the commandment, which I'm glad— uh, that you did. But in the Hebrew, as in English, there are two different words to describe killing. One is just killing, and the other one is killing uh, in, an, in, a, in an inappropriate, immoral fashion. That would be murder, or an illegal fashion, okay? And so mm-hmm. what, what the, uh, the commandment does not say is, thou shalt not kill. It says, thou shalt not murder. Very important distinction, <clears throat> because th- this is in starts in Exodus 20, the Ten Commandments, and I think it's repeated in Deuteronomy as well. Uh, but but the, the uh, concept of capital punishment was initiated and instituted by God long before, and that's in Genesis chapter 9. And there it says, it, this is God speaking to Noah. That's how far back it goes. However far back he goes, that's when capital punishment goes, all right? Because God says, Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. For, in the image of God, God created man. So the the directive there is that human beings are special. We are unique from every other creature on the earth, every other kind of creature, in that we are made in the image of God. And that sets us above everything else, and therefore we are not to... I'm just going to add a word here, wantonly take their life. And uh, if someone wantonly takes a life, then his life should be taken. Now, I put the word wantonly in there. Some people might be saying, well, that's not in there. It just says, if a man sheds man's blood, you're not supposed to shed blood. But wait a minute, the antidote to uh, someone killing someone else is to kill him. So there are circumstances where it's right to kill, in this case, if someone kills someone else. Then there's an act of civic justice that is performed against the capital, uh, the, the, uh, the, the capital criminal committing the capital crime. In fact, there were a, a number, a, quite a number of capital crimes in the Mosaic Law, crimes that required the death penalty. So... Um, it, the Bible doesn't see, teach we should not kill. <clears throat> it's that we should not take human life in a wrong way. That would be okay. murder. So, um, and incidentally, keep in mind, there were lots—one of the things that that God uh, required of Israel is to fight his battles with armies, right? And David was a famous warrior, Though he was a man after God's own heart, he was a famous warrior. And there were a number of times when he had asked God, shall I go up against this enemy? Will you give them into my hand? And God said, I will. And then said, set an ambush and do this, that, and the other thing. So in other excuse me, I'm sorry. In other words, God not only um, uh, approved in certain cases of killing, he helped in the process of uh, strategizing the battles. So um, 
I think this has direct application to your question. And on you, I see the appropriateness of my reference to Band of Brothers here, because here were uh, military men, 101st Airborne, uh, D-Day drop, uh, 506 PIR, in fact, in this particular case, parachute infantry mm-hmm. reg- regiment that dropped behind the lines on June 6, 1944, uh, to do battle with the Germans and initiate an invasion onto the continent, which eventually ended the war. A lot of bloodshed, a lot of lives taken by Allied soldiers, okay? <clears throat> but it, the, it, it, I think in most people's minds, this was a just war. This was an appropriate action that was taken, a military action. And, uh, and there is a certain—this th- th- action can be characterized under two different categories. One of them is self-defense. In other words, when we are being individually attacked and threatened with lethal force, we are, uh, we are allowed to use lethal force in return. Okay, that's my conviction. I'd have to develop mm-hmm. that differently, but but I, I so we certainly see um, examples of that in so scripture. So, if we take it a step further and we say that hate in your heart can be equivalent to murder, is that accurate to say? It's well, I'll, I'm going to strain it. Important gnat here, and that is, it is not equivalent to murder. It is. A, what Jesus described this in Matthew 7, um, and I can just get the words, I'm thinking about, he also talked about adultery, and when he said, if you look at a woman to lust after her, then you committed adultery with her in your heart. Mm-hmm. And uh, well, you know what's funny? I, I grabbed my Bible, and I turned right to the page. That's something. Wow. That happens All right. to me a lot. That's, that's scary. All right, let's just see here. <laughs> Uh, Matthew 5, um, you've heard that the ancients were told, you shall not commit murder, and when someone, whoever commits murder, shall be liable to the court. But I say to you, everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. And whoever says to his brother, you're good for nothing, shall be guilty before the Supreme Court, and whoever says, you fool, shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. So in this passage, it doesn't say that it is murder. It says that it is culpable. It it's, produces guilt. Okay? So just because you don't murder somebody doesn't mean you haven't acted in an inappropriate way to somebody that's still a sin. And then he says... Uh, let's see, good for nothing, make friends quickly. You have heard that it was said, verse 27, you should not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So adultery is one thing. Adultery in the heart is a different sin. It's not as egregious, and I think that's obvious when we think about it, but Jesus' point is it's still a sin. And what he was, I think he was trying to do is show how everyone's guilty. No, right, you didn't commit adultery. No, you didn't commit murder. But that's not going to save you because the law is more demanding than just the actions. Because he knows our thoughts. S- say again? He knows our thoughts. Yes, oh, def- that's true. That's bad it's- news. 
Yes. Uh, but it, well, this, yeah. this is all on an even playing field, that's for sure. Yeah, yeah. So, um, so uh, the the uh, I, I don't think murders in view there in these secondary clauses, but but uh, when it but there are times when killing is certainly appropriate and arguably required, morally required. And uh, the second circumstance, the first I mentioned, was when we are acting in self-defense to use lethal force against a lethal threat. It is also, what if we're not being threatened, but someone else is being, uh, being, being, has a, a lethal threat against them? Can we oppose the lethal threat against them with lethal force? And the answer is yes. So whether it's us or other people, um, we, we can still do that. And, and here we were, allies um, with, with uh, the French and with the British, both under attack. The U.S. wasn't under attack from Germany. It had been under attack from Japan, but now with Germany. But here we are putting together this assault on the Normandy beach on June 6th, 44, on behalf of our compatriots, so to speak, or our allies. Um, so actually we were at war with Germany, but that's because they declared war on us when we declared war on Japan, which is a very stupid thing for Hitler to do, because we would, would not have a, as much of a justification to fight against Hitler just because Japan blew up ships and killed sailors in Pearl Harbor. But nevertheless, he just, because of his uh, connection with Japan, his he was an ally, then he declared war on us and, okay, now we're going in. So um, this was an action where we were defending other people in the uh, Western theater, in the European theater. Uh, we weren't defending ourselves from a direct attack. So both of those were completely justified, in my view, and biblically as well. I, I don't see any reason why we would say otherwise. Well, I, I'm just realizing that there's a lot of soldiers, airmen, you know, Marines. i got to be very specific. I know they're all different, sailors. Um, are... What they're troubled by when they get home after war is what's happening in the mind. Yes. Um, and so in that sense, you know, families are broken apart. Right. Even if they weren't part of, you know, the killing, Right. just the plans to kill or the witness to kill or just even having to, you know, the suicides, things like that. And a lot of, a lot of the military right now are... Um, trying to think of the appropriate words. They don't have their mind stayed on him, I think mm. is what I need to say. Mind stayed on the Lord, you mean? On him, yes. Yeah. And th well, and that's why they're losing the mind battle right now. Well, Because we have so many people in all of these areas of degrees and stuff who are giving them all these other coping skills other than turning to God. Mm -hmm. And... It's all over, and it's frustrating because we trust those who are in a position of authority, but they aren't getting their authority from God, hmm. you know? Because otherwise, a lot of them would have to walk away from their job because they wouldn't be able to, to prescribe the same things that they've been prescribing people when they know the truth. Hmm. Okay. Well, there's a lot there. By the way, are yeah, you, sorry. you... No, no worries. I, I have a few <laughs> things to add to uh, okay. that might be helpful, but um, I'm curious, though, are you are you in a military family? 
So I was in the Army and my husband was in the Marines. Oh. That's why I was very specific about naming the appropriate branch. <laughs> huh. Yes, so, of yeah. course. Uh, and I was, there's kind of a natural... was an MST, but I had to walk away from my job. Okay. Uh, okay After for a... I read the Bible. Huh. And I realized my schooling is not... It, it helps me to speak to other people in that field. But other than that, I would never prescribe any of that for anyone. Okay. Well, I I, can't, I don't know <laughs> that I, I'm in a good position to speak to your circumstances. It looked like you no, you it, chose. It's okay. It, it's good. It's good. I I, I keep I keep my mind on him. Yeah. That well, is, that's good. I, I'm so glad of that. Did your husband or you have a combat MOS? Um. So both of us spent. Uh, I spent a year in Afghanistan. And I did um, mortuary and logistics, and I did a lot of stuff. Okay, so <laughs> then, you you didn't have a combat MOS, but maybe he did. I don't know. Just curious. Um, so yeah, he was in Iraq. So to combined, <laughs> we've had we've gone through all of the different sure coping um, skills and stuff that they teach, and and to be respectful, I, I appreciate everybody who sits there because they want to help. They really do. But as soon as I brought up God, nobody wants anything to do with me. <laughs> yeah, that's you know, unfortunate. <laughs> well, there's. I, I have a couple of thoughts here uh, just to pass on Sarah. By the way, thank you for your sacrifice and your service uh, for both you and your husband. I, I was a uh, U.S. Army from 1968 to 74, so mm. uh, I was a reservist, though. I didn't go overseas. I just did my work and did my weekend warrior business for the duration and that was during the Vietnam conflict, of course. You know, I joined right at the Tet during the Tet Offensive, as it turned out. Mm -hmm. But um, nevertheless, um, so I appreciate uh, the sacrifice you guys have made much more than I made. Um, but um, regarding this broader issue, um, uh, when m the military is doing what it ought to be doing, it actually is getting its authority from God, in my view. Because authority is delegated to government or government uh, governing um, enterprises to do the things that are appropriate in those circumstances. That's why the government has a right to do capital punishment, because that's something that God has delegated to them to carry out, even though God mm -hmm. will have the final justice, okay? But that doesn't mean—so even though they're operating under their divinely given authority, just like, by the way, all parents would be operating underneath their divinely given authority when they're raising their children. It doesn't mean that they recognize the authority they're under. I get that. Even sure. though their authority still is legitimate because the way God has ordered the world. And um, uh, and I actually think, too, that probably you, you would agree with this well, maybe not. I don't know. But there are things that they're doing to to help people with PTSD. You know, uh, EMDR. Or these are techniques that they use with P P PTSD people to deal with all these other things. And that makes no reference to God. I, in my view, there are lots of things that people can learn to do without invoking divine powered or God. Uh, spiritual categories and still help human beings, just like in medicine, mm. you can do that. And also, I think in in these kinds of concerns. However, yeah, I, dis I disagree because I've been through. I, I almost can list every single one that you would list, and it wasn't until I understood who God was that I I had any 
like major healing. Okay. And and some would argue with that because I, you know, will deal with bouts of depression, but I actually look at it as a gift because it keeps me close and I'm able to empathize in a level that I would never be able to oh, absolutely. If, if it was completely lifted from me. And God is doing that, and He's using that. I, I'm not going to take exception with a single word that you offer, um, but you are speaking of your individual circumstance. And what I was going to say is, I do think there's modalities that, that are used that do help people. I know that, oh, even well, though true. God's not involved. But obviously, the best circumstance is to have God there with you and have Him be at the center and even then, some of those other modalities are things that God uses to bring healing to people, just like physical surgery, you know, that kind of thing. But sure. I, I, yeah, I wanted to speak to one other thing, though, that you, you touched on earlier, and it triggered a thought, something I've thought about before. And, the, and that is, even though we may be doing what is right, let's just think of all the soldiers fighting in these, these just wars— just combats, and are doing it in an appropriate fashion. I mean, there's excesses, you know, in every war. I get that. But war is a nasty thing. Battle's a nasty thing. I I, I can't say I've experienced it, but I sure have read a lot about it, okay, and talked to a lot of people. I mean, I I talked to a 101st Airborne D-Day drop of the 502nd and, uh, you know, had dinner with him. He's gone now, but I had the whole evening with him. You know, I I talked to a guy who survived the Bataan Death March, for goodness sake. You know, he's also gone, too. But uh, And uh, I have talked to, you know, anyway, I have a lot of respect for the people who go through very, very difficult kinds of things. But but when they when they're fighting, of course they have to do things that are sometimes so damaging to the psyche, even though they're the right things to do. And the fact is we live in a fallen world, and sometimes living in a falling world, we do things that are right that are still destructive to our souls. Now, that's hard medicine, but it's the reality. And it, it took me a while to kind of come to that conclusion. It was when I was getting my MA Phil, a philosophy degree, and I'm thinking about the condition of our souls. How can doing the right thing cause damage to our souls? And the reason is because we live in a fallen world. Well, we undervalue our role as far as fighting the battles within our own immediate families first. A lot of times when we're sworn in, you're putting the country and you're putting others before your own family, and that hurts Mm -hmm. um, the family, you know, immediate tree. And I think we need to put a lot more emphasis on battling the sins within the family Mm -hmm. before we go out and we want to get our hero badge or whatever it is. And I'm not trying to to be patronizing right now. I'm just... Mm -hmm. You know, we don't get an award for being father a year. We don't get an award for being the best friend. We don't get the award for, you know, staying up with your newborn baby at two in the morning. You know, but Mm -hmm. those are the things that we think about in our last days. That's right. But, uh, yeah, uh, well, I think there are other things, too, that we think about. It depends about the rightness of the conflict. Again, I'm just reflecting or speculating, not from my own my own uh, experience, obviously, but if if um, uh, if if when a person signs up 
for a job like that, they are declaring that I am going to put my life on the line for my country instead of putting my life on my line on the line for my family. I mean, that's the nature of that contractual arrangement. Now, we can make the best of that, maybe better than what we've been doing so far, you know, and I think the yeah. modern army is a whole lot better. Hey, look, you know, you've got six, eight, nine month, maybe a year long tours now, right? When people in the Second World War, they were in for the duration. They didn't come home until the war was over. You know, and so things have improved quite a bit. But they, when they sign up, they're saying, "I'm giving my life to the army, and my family, or Navy, or Marines, or whatever, and my family second. That's just the nature of that job. And, well, and and some of them, however, and I would be speaking directly to the people who know what I'm talking about. Okay, will sign up to be a geographical bachelor and to leave their family on purpose, and they know who they are. And I think we shouldn't. Um, sugarcoat that part. Yeah, okay. In other words, they're um, trying to get people, away. That's an abandonment yes. of sorts. Okay. Right, right. They're they're evading. Um, maybe God said, hey, things are on pause right now. You need to be focusing on this battle. Mm-hmm. And a lot of times, because you put the uniform on or you signed up, God will make a way for you, mm. even if you signed up mm-hmm. and said, this is what I'm going to do. You know, if you came to most leadership and were honest with your situation, they'll find a way or they will put a new leadership person in that position to find a way for you to do what God's calling you to do, do his will. Mm -hmm. So I think we have to be careful about just because it's the military, just because we signed up, it's God's will. Sometimes God's will isn't what it it looks like for us, Mm. you know? Okay. Or well, we we get an injury and and we can no longer do it, and then we think, oh, that's my identity, and maybe mm-hmm. he took you out of the battle to put you in a different one. Yeah. Okay. You know. Well, well Sarah, I you know hard to argue with your experience in this Sorry. regard. So no worries <laughs> at all. And I thank you. It's been such a treat to talk with you, and I thank you so much for calling. Okay. Thank you. Okay, buddy. <laughs> can I say that, buddy? Okay. <laughs> um. Yeah, one of the guys. Soldier. All right, um, we're just going to keep going. Uh, We don't need a break right now. Uh, We got Jacob on board, so let's go right to him. And uh, Jacob, welcome. Orlando, Florida, glad to talk with you. Oh, wait, my button thing isn't—let me try it again. Oh, no, okay. Jacob, you're there. All right, yes, okay. Amy pushed your button right when I was about to push the button, and if I would have pushed the button when she pushed it, you might have hung up. I mean, I might have hung you up, but we're, we got it covered now. Thank you, Jacob. No problem. Okay, cool. Um, yeah, I just had a question because I called uh, last week. Uh, thank you for taking my call Sure. today. Um, you know, I had a good conversation last week about uh, some questions that I had asked, like, and you gave me information about First Timothy 3 and everything. Mm-hmm. And um, so it, it led me to do some more research, and it's that's been great. And I uh, had a good conversation with my pastor. We actually talked today. Okay. Um, and he shared with me um, because I, w- I was I was doing the Colombo thing, mm-hmm. you know, which which is great. Um, <laughs> but he he had shared with me that a passage like First Timothy because I. 
I, I, I didn't know a whole lot about complementarianism versus egalitarianism. Yeah. Um, and so I figured that out in the past week of like research. But he he shared with me that First um, Timothy three is descriptive rather than prescriptive. Hmm. Which particular passage in chapter three or section are are you talking about now? So um, we we were talking you know, kind of about eldership and mm-hmm. all that kind of stuff, and he was. He had shared with me that, because um, our church is, I, I, I think I figured this out today, but it's egalitarian in its view. Mm-hmm. Um, and so he shared with me that the view is that we are like male and female, like a um, kingdom priesthood. Okay. So we didn't have a super deep conversation, like I said, it was pretty general. But... Um, he was sharing that in the context, because I was asking, you know, how do we know the difference between prescriptive and descriptive? And he said, we know it by the context. And so I asked it in, in the terms of First Timothy 3, um, when Paul is describing the qualifications for eldership. Mm-hmm. And he's, his response to me was that that was descriptive in the time, because that's the way things were at that time, because he shared, you know, the Bible can't mean anything today that it didn't mean back then. Um, so I was just curious what your point of view and perspective is on passages that are, as he says, descriptive rather than prescriptive. Well, yeah, I think there is a distinction. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't—and I know the distinction well—I just don't see—this happens a lot in the Old Testament. So mm-hmm. uh, David went out and killed a bunch of guys. So mm-hmm. we're supposed to go out and kill a bunch of guys. No, that's not telling us what to do. It's telling us what he did. That's a mm-hmm. descriptive passage, not a prescriptive. Remember, prescriptive prescribes what ought to be done. Descriptive mm-hmm. describes what happened. Okay? So mm-hmm. in this—I'm I, I, actually a little bit floored by this end run. Okay? I'm troubled by it. Really? Yes, and the reason is is because there I see nothing in this passage at all that indicates that it's simply descriptive. Paul is not telling here are the kinds of things that happen in our church. I'm just letting you know these are the things that happen. Mm-hmm. He is talking about what must take place. If any man aspires to an office of overseer, it's a fine work he decides, an overseer then must be above reproach. Now, must be, that's not descriptive, that's prescriptive. And then he's got a list of categories there. Uh, And then verse 4, must be, now that's in italics because they're just picking that must be up from above, putting it in here, because the same kind of uh, imperatives are, uh, are continuing. And it is an imperative, which means it's prescriptive one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control. But if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the Church of God? Now, I I, I honestly don't know how uh, somebody—maybe I'm missing something somebody can offer, but I don't understand how somebody can take those words—and I could keep going— and then mm-hmm. read them as merely descriptive. Oh, he's just talking about what's going on. Who cares about what's going on? 
Why should we care about what's going on? We want to know what we're supposed to do to run a good church. So if that's right. just what's going on, how does it help what Paul's purpose is here? So mm-hmm. you, you, and you've got, in Titus chapter 1, you also have um, requirements for elders. Now, the point I'm making there, and I don't know how much male language is included there, but the point is it's a passage about requirements for elders. This is a passage about requirements for elders and deacons. Since they are requirements, they are prescriptive. They are not descriptive. And the wording is quite clear. Okay? Mm-hmm. So uh, historical accounts are the ones you usually make this distinction, because we see these things taking place, but just because the—like in the Old Testament—but just because we see um, these things recorded as such does not mean that they were supposed to do what they did. Polygamy is a good mm-hmm. example. Oh, look at all these people that were polygamous in the Old Testament. And and, uh, and now we're supposed to be celibate in the New Testament. Wait a minute, they were supposed to be celibate in the Old Testament, too. This wasn't saying what we ought to be doing or they ought to be doing. It's just saying what they did and recording all the problems they ran into because of all their multiple wives, especially mm-hmm. Solomon. So that's the st- distinction between descriptive and prescriptive. I, I honestly don't see—and uh, that's why I said it concerns me, and that surprised you a bit—how this could be— I don't see how this can be read descriptively. I just don't. It, it doesn't. It doesn't fit the language of the passage. Here, look at verse 11 in chapter 2. Now, there's—I'm not going to try to exegete what right. he's getting at, but I'm just looking at the issue of descriptive versus prescriptive. A woman must quietly receive instruction with entirely submissive—with entire submissiveness. I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. That is not descriptive language. What to do with women and women and man there, Aner and Gune, that's a different matter. But it's clear that he's telling how things ought to be done. In fact, in one of the passages, it might be in the Titus passage, there's a there's a line uh, that has to do how things ought to be done in the house of God or something like that. H-I. Titus is after Timothy, right? Um, how one is to one needs to comport himself within the household of God. I'm just scanning here for my underlines. Uh, sometimes they they give. Uh, here's the purpose. Um, of the of what I'm trying to do, and I think in one of these it says, "I wish I had it right in front. I could find it if I had five minutes mm-hmm. of okay. airtime." <laughs> but I, uh, That's fine. I, I, I can't do it. In Titus, where you That's also fine. see this, I, I'm telling you how you ought to comport yourself in the household of God. Clearly, not descriptive, but prescriptive. So there now, you go. Greg, may, may I share one more thing with you? Sure, of course. Okay. So, um, in the conversation, there was a point that he made about a female named Junia. Are you familiar with her? You mean in in Scripture, a biblical individual named Junia? Yeah. The one that uh, this lady was apparently an apostle. Oh, that wasn't me. 
No, no, no. I'm not saying you. I'm uh, saying in the conversation that I had earlier um, not with, with my me. pastor. Oh, well, I don't know of any Julia in the Bible that was an apostle. No, not, Ju- not Julia, Junia, J-U-N-I-A. Junia. I don't know. Amy's getting her mic now, right? Oh, it says outstanding among the apostles is Junia, right? Is that I? Okay, I, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, that, Amy's looking it up right now. No, I'm not. I'm not aware of that. Okay. Okay. Romans sixteen yeah. seven. Okay. Now, um, the word. This is where things might. Um, let me go to Romans sixteen seven because that's where it shows up. But I, according to Amy, but I just want to keep in mind that there, there, there are prophets and there are prophets. All right. Um, uh-huh. There are prophets that there a person is a prophet or a prophetess. Uh-huh. Like uh, we see in the book of Acts, who who give a prophecy. There are other prophets that are figures of authority in, uh, say, in the Old Testament. So you have Samuel, mm-hmm. uh, the first great prophet, um, and um, so so uh, the word prophet could be understood in two different ways. I'm sorry, Amy. Romans what? Oh, <laughs> I should have wrote it down. I got to talk, and she's like. Sixteen seven. Okay. okay. So, um, so what an what an apostle is apostolos. It means a sent out one. Okay. Mm-hmm. So there's a certain sense in which there can be an apostle capital A, uh-huh. and an apostle an apostle small A. Okay. Mm, good now, point. Yes, and just like there could be a prophet capital P, and a prophet small P. Prophet small p is somebody who just gives a, a, a legitimate authorized prophecy. A capital uh-huh. a uh, prophet capital p. And these are my distinctions, but I'm, it's, I'm trying to capture with these d- words here a biblical reality. The the capital p are ones that are kind of have a, a significant authority, just like Samuel. Okay, right. Did now um, uh, remember that when. The apostles were were chosen. Uh, I'm sorry. One was chosen to replace um, uh, Judas, <laughs> the guy who hung uh-huh. himself. Okay, in the first uh, chapter one, I think of the book of Acts, um, there was a, a set of criteria for the capital A apostles, right? And that there weren't just ones that were sent out, small a, but there were ones that had been with them from the beginning and had. Um, and had been witnesses to the risen Christ. Now, that was a criteria there, okay? Mm-hmm. Now, it turns out that Paul, the apostle, wasn't with the original band from the beginning, but he was a witness to the resurrected Christ, who actually set him aside and trained him directly in all mm-hmm. these matters, which things he ended up taking, according to Galatians 1, back to the so-called pillars, Peter, James, and John, to make sure that he wasn't running amiss, all right? Mm-hmm. So um, I'm not surprised then. Here, let's go to 16.7. Greet, uh, and uh, da, da, Junius Andr- Andronicus and Junius, my kinsman. Uh, look at here, 7.1. Oh, I need a magnifying glass here. Junius... It's the point feminine, was made, or, if, I may, if I may say. Yeah, I see Junius in my translation. It has in the marginal, it could be Juni, uh, the feminine version. My kinsmen yes. and my fellow prisoners who are outstanding among the apostles who are also were in Christ before me. So uh, I have a question mark, actually, I've written at apostles right here. So I'm not sure in what sense 
they mean apostles. I'll tell you what I wouldn't do, is I'm not going to hinge a significant point of doctrine on whether uh-huh. Junius, in verse 7, is male or female, because there's a marginal reference as it could be either. All right? So uh-huh. uh, it, it isn't—that's all I'm saying at this point. I, I haven't okay. haven't pursued that at all. But apparently your pastor thinks that this is an important feature that indicates and a kind female. of— Yes, an egalitarian role of the males and females in that yes. sense, in the authority position. Yes. Yeah, I think that's pretty thin ice, frankly. If that's it, that's the hinge pin, especially when I'm looking at my own translation and there's, like, lack of clarity, apparently with the translators, whether it's a male or female form so of the, the word. So point, the point that was made—sorry to interrupt you, Greg. No, that's right. Um, the point that was made was that way back earlier on, her name was Junia, but then when the text was translated to English, the man who translated it translated it to Junius instead of Junia because of the male. His point was that it was because he didn't want it to have, like, the female apostleship thing, so he changed it to Junius instead of Junia. And that was one of the points that was made in favor of the egalitarian point of view. Right. And he, Okay, so, well, wait a minute now. Now what this means is we have a variant. That means—no, yeah. and, and I don't know if we have a variant or not. Maybe he is just assuming it must have been changed, or maybe some manuscripts say Junia and some say Junias, or have the male and female, whatever those are. And so now you have a variant. I don't know. Is there a variant here? Or he's just assuming it should be the other one, but it was changed? So he he suggested a book to me— written by Scott McKnight, I think his name was. Oh, I know who he is, yeah. Yeah, and the book's called Junia is Not Alone. And I think it has to do with about other women back in that time that, I guess, had apostolic things going on or whatever. Yeah, I I don't know. I'm not familiar with that. I I mean, Scott McKnight's a a New Testament scholar, no question at all there. uh But uh, still, I mean, I'm just looking at this, and if this is a genuine um, variant, that means in some manuscripts it says one thing, and in other manuscripts it says another, then one has to make a judgment based on the rules of textual criticism where this turns up and how it turns up, as to which variant is the most likely. And what you can't do, and I'm not saying anybody's doing this, but the wrong way to do it is to try to find the variant, choose the variant that matches your theology. Right. So I don't know about this variant, and even if it is a variant, you know, like, like I said, McKnight knows a lot of what he's doing, but I don't agree with everything McKnight holds to myself. I actually met him, had dinner with him one night, uh, many, many, many years ago, but uh, with a bunch of other people. Uh, mm-hmm. But nevertheless, uh, this, this, I don't know about that. I, uh, it, it's, it, it strikes me. I don't know. I want. I tend to be rather conservative about things, and so when I see a trend which seems to be throughout the scripture, which, by the way, matches the trend of the of of the Jewish spiritual life, uh-huh. and it just has continued into the, the Christian um, spiritual life in terms of leadership patterns, um, then I'm kind of going to stick with the main trend, biblically, and not try to go off on tangents with little variations where maybe I can find this hidden point. Mm-hmm. I, don't, I just don't see that. 
at all. Mm-hmm. And, and incidentally, we were talking about First Timothy, and uh-huh. in the it, in my mind, I'm going back there right now. But in my mind, I, uh, in my mind, there is some question as to whether Aner uh, and Gune in First Timothy two, the first portion. That is it is it husband or wife or man or woman? But in any event, there's a strong limitation put on either husbands or wives, and husbands relative to wives or women relative to men. There is a limitation there. This is not an egalitarian passage, no matter how you translate those uh, those particular words. So anyway, this obviously, Jacob, we could uh, talk for hours on yeah. this issue, and it's a really <laughs> nice great. talking with you. You're very very gracious, and yes. uh, my music's coming up here, so I, I'm going to have to run. But uh, thanks for your call, and chew on that. Maybe we'll talk again another time about these issues yes. or others, okay? All right, have a blessed night. Okay, you too. Bye, Jacob. Thank you so much. All right, friends, there it is. Yeah, this this particular thing is I push the buttons, it doesn't respond. It doesn't like me. It likes you better, Amy. All right, that's it for our uh, our friends. Thank you for being part of it. Greg Kokel here for Stand to Reason. Give them heaven. Bye-bye now.